Well, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 3. And uh, really, you know me by now and you know how slow I am at working my way through passages. And so we're not going to be looking at the whole of Ephesians 3. Instead, what we're really going to be focusing on is from verse 14 to verse 19. There are some huge fundamental truths in these few verses. And really what I I just want us to do is consider in a, maybe a, a devotional way, in a way that points us as a congregation to prayer. We're going to come to a point of prayer, and really this is uh, a prayer of Paul in Ephesians. This is a, a prayer which in many ways we can echo. There's so many beautiful things in here, and, and as we read it and go through it, I think it's great if we think, wouldn't it be good if we prayed this for our church? Wouldn't this be great if it was true in my life? Wouldn't this be great if everybody had a refreshing and remembering of the glorious truths that are contained here? This is a great example of what we can pray tonight. But also what we see here is a full view of God. Contained in this prayer is quite clearly and evidently the reality of the Trinity. The Trinity is contained here. The fullness of God in all of his persons. And there's almost an exploration in in some detail about the economic trinity. What each of the persons does in the trinity. What is their function? What is their role? And so we'll look at that, the glories of the trinity. But just as we begin, maybe as a way for introduction, verse 14 begins by saying, For this reason... Now, whenever we see something like that, the first question that jumps to our mind is, what? Well, what's the reason? So Paul is going to go on and say, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. But what is the reason? Well, I think we see a glimpse of this if we jump back uh, just a little bit for verses 12 and verse 13. I'm not going to read them all out, but just picking some verses Uh, Some lines from verse 12 and 13. I think Paul is mentioning things like that we have boldness. That we have access. Later on he goes on to say that with confidence. He commends us, doesn't he, that we might not lose heart. And I think this is what he has in mind as we look at this great prayer. That this is a prayer that we can pray for boldness, to have confidence. If we are struggling, don't lose heart. Pray to him. This is really a prayer about the building up of believers. The prayer for the strengthening of the saints. And as we gather here today for the prayer meeting, in many ways the prayer meeting is the life of the church. It's where we seek after God. It's where we seek the face of God I think uh, Spurgeon once described it as the engine room of the church. And you know what that means. It's, it's where we plead for God to move. And we acknowledge, don't we, that we are wholly and completely reliant on the power of God. It is not in our own power that we do things. 
It is not in our own strength that we accomplish things. In my own strength, I'll be honest, I don't accomplish very much. But we appeal with boldness, with confidence, with access. We can go to the Father, praying to him for the building up, the renewing and the strengthening of his church. And so really, if I had to have uh, headings, my first point would be the Father. And this really reflects from verse 14. I bow my knees before the Father. Now this idea could be used in a very peculiar way. And I've seen some people almost use it to prescribe that this is the correct way that we should pray. More specifically, that every time we come to prayer, we should get on our knees. For that is the the best way of prayer. That is the best posture for prayer. And many people would advocate and say that here I bow my knees before the Father is a very physical thing. It's a physical act as we approach prayer. And that the position that we pray in reflects the answer to prayer. The position that we pray in reflects how we pray, whether it's a a good session of prayer or a bad session of prayer. I don't really see it like that. And there's another view that that, that is taken that the posture of prayer doesn't really matter at all. And I would say I'm somewhere in between. I think many of us will have had an encountered situation, maybe right after you've heard some bad news, where this idea we understand it, of just falling to your knees. When the world has overcome you, when we don't know where to turn, when we don't know what to do, have you felt like that? When you've just fell down and you've got nothing to do but to cry and to pray to God. Well, I would say about this idea of of bowing your knees, I think the posture, if I can phrase it like this a little bit poetically, I think the posture of your heart matters more than the posture of your body. And I think that's what we see here. There might be a lot of people who pray on their knees from a position of arrogance. And there might be a lot of people who pray standing up with humble hearts filled with reverence. I think what really matters here is as we pray, as we come before the Father, as we approach God, What is your position of your heart? How do you approach God? Do you approach him spiritually on your knees? Or do you approach him lofty? Do you approach God with reverence? Or do you approach him in a almost here I am God with my shopping list sort of way? Are we reverent as we approach God? Are we humble? I think when we approach prayer, I think it's great to have that reminder, number one, of who we are, and number two, of who God is. I think that's always helpful in prayer. To be reminded of who God is, of his power, of his strength, of his purity, of his holiness. And then almost the complete opposite with me. I'm sure very similar with you as we reflect on our sins, 
as we reflect on our coldness of heart, as we reflect on how we failed this day. I wonder, have we got a high view of God and a low view of ourselves? For he is the king. And we need to remember and we need to understand that everything in verse 12 and 13 is true. You can approach God in confidence. You have access to God. But as we approach him, surely there should be reverence. As we approach the almighty God, the consuming fire, a God who is so far beyond us, so far above us, there must be a humbleness in our hearts as we approach the king of the universe. And I also want to note in verse 14 that it is nothing short of a divine miracle. It's nothing short of grace from God that you can come before the Father. I love that word before. And that's what we're going to do in prayer this evening. We are going to come before God in prayer. And I love the, the closeness. I love the nearness. We are not going to be 30 miles away from God. We're not going to be 100 miles from God. We are going to be before him. He hears. He listens to our prayers. And it is wonderful and it is shocking that I can come before God. And if you've had a terrible week, if you've had a week where your Bible has begun to get a bit dusty, if you've had a week where your prayer life has been dead, if you have had a week where you're not living out for Christ, isn't it wonderful that we can still come before God? Maybe there's repentance in our hearts, but we can come before him. We have access to him in prayer. He is close. He's near. I wonder, do we believe that as we're going to pray together? Do we believe that God is close to us? Do we believe that he's near? Verse 15 continues with this idea of Father. From, every, uh, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Here you've got this extension of the idea of family. We together as believers in Jesus Christ are part of one family. We are united together by the blood of Christ and we are part of God's family. Not only is God close to us, not only are we before God, we are before God as Father. That's even closer again, isn't it? Every time we look at it, we seem to be getting closer and nearer to God. We have a relationship with him, a personal relationship with the almighty God. And here in verse 15, there's this idea of family in heaven and on earth is named. And the family mentioned here earlier, again, jumping back a bit to understand the context, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19. There's a mention about being citizens. And there's another mention about being members of the household of God. 
Now, seemingly, this idea of family is is being expanded upon now in chapter 3. That we are part of God's own family. It's not multiple families. There is one single family created and made by one single sacrifice. And I think this would have been a particularly powerful message at the time for Gentiles. If you think about Gentiles, they would have been not just outside or alienated from God, but now they are being told that they can know God, they can be grafted into his family. They're not just included in the nation of Israel as a physical entity. They are included in the very family of God. And this is the same decree here. For everyone who is in Christ Jesus, you know the Lord as Father. A relationship. I wonder if that changes your prayer this evening. I wonder if it changes your prayer as you think about how we know him. We love him. My second point, maybe unsurprisingly, my second point is looking at the Spirit. Verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. There's a sense here that we cannot fully understand the complexities or the greatness which is being outlined here. According to the riches of his glory. Let me begin by saying I have not got a clue what that means. Can you imagine the riches of the glory of God? To me it speaks of something that that cannot be measured. Something that cannot end. Something that is spiritual and lasting and ongoing. I find it truly amazing that we can share in that. The riches of his glory. He may grant to you. And what I love about this is that when you think about kings and queens, when you think about rulers, Now, they don't often give much money. I I, I know a few people who are fairly wealthy, and they don't give much money to their own family members, let alone somebody off the street. But look at our glorious God, who is willing to share with those who he has brought into his family, those whom he has declared adopted as sons and daughters, he is willing to share with them the riches of his glory. It reminds me a little bit of uh, of Romans chapter 8. If then sons, then heirs. We do not deserve the riches of Christ. We do not deserve this spiritual blessing and spiritual gifting. But that doesn't matter. You might not deserve it, but he gives it. And it's a prayer, isn't it? Maybe it's a prayer for this evening that we will be granted the strength and power that comes from the Holy Spirit. Well, I want us to note in verse 16 
is that this strength does not come from within, but from above. It doesn't come from within our own selves. It comes from the Holy Spirit. This is not strength in terms of physical strength. This is not the ability to lift more weights. This is not the ability to move heavy bits of furniture around your house. This is a spiritual strength that is in the inner man. This is something, this is a work that only God can do. And this is a prayer that he will grant us to be strengthened with power. Matthew Henry phrases it like this. The spirit who is the immediate worker of grace in the souls of God's people. I think that's a beautiful description of what the Holy Spirit is and who he is and what he does. He is the immediate worker of grace in the souls of God's people. The Holy Spirit is at work. The Holy Spirit ministers to us. I'm sure many of us are in need of strength for a various number of issues. As we deal with a a difficult culture, maybe some of us have got difficult family lives. What I find so encouraging is that we are not called to to sort of man up and find strength by your own self. We're not called to, to do it all alone. But our prayer is that God would be with us that his spirit would strengthen us, that there would be power in our lives that can only come from him. This is not a superficial might, but this is something that occurs deep in your inner being. I think our current culture is, it seems very focused on the health of people, doesn't it? Very focused I don't know if you've got a Fitbit, but every now and then it will shout at you if you're not moving enough. And I think we're a very health-conscious society or culture at the moment. And these things are important. But I wonder how much as Christians we value the health and the importance of our inner being. Other translations use the inner man. I wonder not what your physical health is like. I'm not going to ask you where you've been to the gym because I don't want to tell you when I've last been to the gym, to be honest. But what I want to know is what is your spiritual health like? Not just your physical health. Are you in step with the Spirit? Is your prayer this evening that you might be filled with this strength and this power? The Holy Spirit is almost takes these great theological doctrines and applies it, makes it real to us, helps us and supports us. The idea here is that not just that we know about God, that we we know him. We don't just know about him, but we know who he is because of that relationship and that connection. And then the final thing I'll draw your attention to, my final point is Christ. Because the moving and the working of the Spirit is crucial. And in verse 17, this work continues. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, 
that you being rooted and grounded in love. Here Paul is asking in prayer that Jesus would live and be alive in that group of believers. That is a, a truly fantastic prayer. That Christ would dwell in the hearts of the Christians in Bethel Clitter. Isn't that a great prayer? That he would be dwelling in them. But what does it mean for Christ to dwell in your heart? What does that phrase mean? Well, there's two Greek words which convey this idea of dwelling or, or living in. And one of these words is similar to, uh, maybe we would say sojourning. If somebody is living somewhere and they've moved somewhere, but they're a bit out of place, or it's temporary, they're not going to be there for, for much longer. They, they feel like strangers. They feel like outcasts. And you might live somewhere, but you feel out of place. It's not quite, not quite where you want to be. And the second Greek word reflects a settling in, a permanency, a moving in permanently. Today, people often talk about a forever home. Have you, uh, have you heard some people talk about that? They move into a house and they say, this is my forever home. I'm never moving. This house is where I'm going to live and spend the rest of my days. This is my house forever. There's a permanency there. And that is the meaning of the Greek word used here. That Christ to dwell in our lives is permanent. It is lasting. Christ does not just come and then go, but there is a lasting permanency in the power of Jesus Christ. Again, in your life, take confidence in that. Pray that we might know Christ dwelling in our hearts. And this miracle of Christ dwelling in our hearts is really a, a result of faith. That's what we read, isn't it, in verse 16? Through faith. That's how it occurs. We need spiritual strength in order for Christ to dwell within us. Our sinful human nature, in, in some sense, it's, it's almost like it's resistant to the, the message of Christ. Resistant to him. I think sometimes people talk about the old man and the new man. Where part of you still goes back to sin, still enjoys sin, or is still conned by sin. But we know that we are forgiven. We know we are gloriously saved. And though in these bodies we will never overcome sin, we don't believe any of us are sinless. That's one thing the church teaches us, doesn't it? It teaches us that Christians are not pure and perfect, yet. But in him, one day, we will be made to be like him. But there's this idea of resistance. But the regeneration of the Holy Spirit is what leads ultimately to Christ dwelling in us through faith permanently. There's a permanency in the power of Christ. He does not just... Uh, Come into your life or, or save you and then abandon or leave you. Do you know the permanency of Christ? Paul continues to say, doesn't he, 
that you, being rooted and grounded in love. That's a prayer for Bethel Church. That we might be a people rooted and grounded in love. That love might define us. That love might be what holds us together. Sure, many of us, when we think of the word rooted, we think of uh, flowers. And flowers can only grow as tall as the roots underneath the ground can supply. The roots are what supplies the nutrients. The roots is what supplies the life that the flower needs. And without the roots, it cannot function. Oh, if we were rooted in love. Charles Spurgeon says about the word grounded, it says to him, it's like a building which has been settled and will never show any cracks or flaws in the future through failures of its foundation. If it's grounded, there's not going to be any cracks. It's safe. It's secure. Oh, might we be like that in love. Moving on, verse 18. May have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and, de- and height and depth. Now this is continuing, talking about that we would have this strength. But it's saying that we would have the strength to understand all the measurements, to understand all of the units, Of what? Well, I think verse 18, quite obviously, I think there's only one thing it really could be. I think verse 18 is talking about the love of Christ. That we would have the strength to understand its breadth, its length, its height, and its depth. Today, I want to remind you that the love of Jesus Christ is such that we cannot, And we do not, we we clearly, by the way that we live, we do not grasp the greatness, the magnitude of Jesus' love for us. We just don't understand how much he loves us. I'm sure you've done something stupid in your life and you've gone to your significant other or you've gone to somebody and you've said, I just don't know why you love me. It might be a regular occurrence. You might say that every day. I don't know. But it's that idea. We do not fully, we don't grasp it. How great Christ's love for us is. So just briefly, what is it that the breadth or or the width of Christ's love? What's the width of Christ's love? Let me say this, that Christ's love is vast. Christ has not just saved the 12 disciples. Christ has not just saved the Apostle Paul. But many he calls. Many people he has chosen. His width, his breadth of salvation is large. He saves many. There will be a great multitude in heaven of those Christ has redeemed and saved. The width. What about the length? Well, when I think of the the length of of God's love, it makes me think, does it have a starting point? 
Is there a point when Christ's length started? Absolutely not. Before the foundation of the world, he had a plan to come to save, to love, to redeem. What about the depth? How deep is the love of Jesus? Well, no matter how far sin has dragged you down into the pit and the mire, no matter how much even as a Christian sin is still in your life, does not the love of Jesus Christ go deeper than the sins that we commit? However much you sin, his love is greater. And what about the height? Well, I'm reminded by Ephesians 2, verse 6. And we are raised us up, seated us with him in the heavenly places. With him he raised us up. The love of Jesus is something none of us can truly grasp. We need the strength of the Spirit to grasp how much God loves us. That should give you value tonight. That should make you feel valued and loved. And then we come to verse 19. And verse 19 is really, I think, the best verse. But I haven't spent much time because I want you to go away thinking about it. Verse 19 says this. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now that is a powerful prayer. That is a bold prayer. That we might have certainty and confidence about what Jesus' love truly, really looks like. When we read through scriptures, there is a confidence that we can have and know the love of Jesus. The idea of knowing something, we haven't got to guess. We haven't got to sit in in a group and try and work out what it is. We can know it. It is clearly laid out in scripture. That we can know the love of God. It's not an academic understanding, but a spiritual revelation. But the end of verse 19, what a prayer. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's a powerful way to end this prayer. That we as believers might be filled. Now I'm sure I've used this example before. Well, I love tea, and whenever I make tea, I've got a tendency to put too much liquid in my mug. And uh, no matter how many cups of tea I make, I always put too much liquid in my mug. And when I pick up my mug, I don't get very far before the liquid splashes out of my mug onto the floor. And there's normally a long wet trail wherever I take my tea to. My mug is so full, it's coming out. It's overflowing. My mug cannot contain it. Oh, that we might be filled. Not that we would know a little bit of God, but we might be filled completely. No room for anything else. 
For Christ has captivated us. For the fullness of God is in our lives. That we would be filled with all fullness. Can you imagine what the church here would look like if everyone here, if all the members of the church were filled with the fullness of God? Something to go home praying about and thinking about that we would know that. One theologian phrased it like this, and I, and I love this, and I can't put it really better than myself. One theologian phrased it like this. Among all the great sayings in this prayer, this is the greatest. To be filled with God is a great thing. We'd say yes and amen to that, wouldn't we? To be filled with God is a great thing. To be filled with the fullness of God, well, that's just greater still. But to be filled with all the fullness of God utterly bewilders the sense and confounds the understanding. I think that's beautiful. We cannot even imagine what being filled like this would look like. And yet, Paul prays it. And wouldn't it be great for us to pray that we might be filled with the fullness of God? That in our lives, when we are struggling, when we are, feel like the pressures of the world are winning, oh, but we find strength and power in him. This really, if I can sum it up like this, this is one great prayer that the only family of God may be filled with all the fullness of God, which can only be achieved by Christ dwelling in our hearts through the moving of the Spirit as we bow before the Father in prayer. It's a triune prayer. It's a glorious prayer. And the question is, will we pray this? that we might know him, not a little bit, not as an add-on to our lives, but that we might know the fullness of him.